Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to our latest podcast. I'm Alex Parsons, lead analyst for the Americas. Today I'm joined by Eloise Scott, lead analyst for Middle East and Africa, and James Hanlon, our associate analyst for the Americas. Today we're going to discuss the Iranian presidential elections, the continuing nuclear talks, and the impact of these elections and the talks on the wider region. Eloise, what do we think is going to be the outcome of the presidential elections? Thanks, Alex. Well, I think one thing that's sure is that they're certainly going to have a hard-hitting impact. The Conservative Judicial Chief, Ibrahim Raisi, seems uh, essentially set to win the upcoming elections, and uh, he'll at least dominate the first round of voting, if if not um, into the second round. Uh, It's interesting as well that he's widely tipped as being a potential successor for the Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, as well. So he has clearly these very strong hardline credentials. He also played quite a major role um, in the late 1980s in sentencing hundreds of dissidents and opposition figures. So he's really, um, he really enjoys the backing of powerful groups, including, crucially, the um, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps in Iran. It it is going to be a contentious election, I think. There are other candidates, but it really seems that they're only there almost to guarantee Raisi's victory. And there were only two candidates that actually made it through the Guardian Council, essentially, um, that, that fit this more sort of moderate and, and centrist side of things. The poll itself and the coming days will most likely pass relatively smoothly. This is most likely due to the, the threat of a, a harsh police response to any kind of protest activity. But this means that really the only way for Iranians to protest is to essentially boycott the vote. And pretty much all of the candidates really lack any kind of popular appeal, including Raisi, even though he has the backing of the IRGC. And I think Iranian citizens more than ever are really conscious that the vote is essentially being fixed by the Guardian Council, which just before the election barred, or earlier this year, I should say, barred nearly 600 candidates from running in the first place. So turnout is expected to be really low, uh, possibly the lowest for presidential elections that we've seen in the Islamic Republic. And I think it's it's worth just pausing on this point briefly, as Iranian authorities have for decades really used electoral turnout to sort of claim legitimacy, particularly when faced with sweeping criticism on issues such as human rights and things like that. A low turnout, which is widely expected, will, will really inflict quite a considerable blow to Iran's rulers, particularly at such a critical time when organisations such as the IRGC have come under quite, quite severe scrutiny, really, for actions or for misdemeanours, really, with within these tensions with the US, particularly in the aftermath of the shooting down, obviously, of of the Ukrainian passenger jet. So there are these these points that are are real um, tensions that that Iran's leaders will have to face after the vote as well. That's fascinating. I have to say, it sounds like a real backward step for the Iranian people. I mean, they're under huge pressure. Uh, They often talk in terms of hoping to be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but it doesn't look like there's much light at the moment. But also, it doesn't seem to me that this is a a regime, if you like, that that is feeling particularly confident and strong if it's having to clamp down in the way that you've described. How then is the outcome of the election, this this sort of imposition of, of hardline authority, how is it going to affect the nuclear talks? Is it going to make them less likely to succeed? Yes, yeah, certainly. It's an interesting point. And I'll, I'll hand over to, to James once I've given sort of Iran's two pence. But I think 
almost paradoxically, I think the incoming president, who obviously seems um, seems likely that it will be Raisi, him, because he works, he's already very closely aligned with Khamenei, it, it almost seems as if they'll be acting as one voice and that that could therefore lead to actually a more swift agreement. Um, obviously, we've seen tensions between outgoing President Rouhani with the Supreme Leader, and that that could have, have been quite a, a point of friction for policy in these crucial areas. So actually, if the Supreme Leader and the President are more aligned, this could, you know, this could actually lead to progress in talks more quickly, which is, which, you know, in, in many ways would be a positive. And I think it is possible that Khomeini has almost been keeping Iranian negotiators on sort of quite a tight leash um, until these elections to determine what, you know, what trajectory the country is, is really taking. Also, I'd say that just given that a, a nuclear deal or progress towards one would most likely come with some kind of US sanctions relief, this, you know, this is a real, um, a real priority for, for the incoming president. All of the candidates have highlighted economic issues. So if they are able to progress towards some kind of agreement, this will be seen as a major victory and could help to address some of the, the sort of economic and financial burdens on the country, although they're not likely to, to go as far as, as is needed. And that said, Raisi and other hardline candidates in particular, they've really demonstrated a, a clear reluctance to try to improve relations with the West. Um, interestingly, in, in the debates, in the run up to the election, foreign policy just hasn't featured Raisi hasn't presented a plan for addressing relations with the US and, and how he would tackle a potential nuclear deal. So even if there is some kind of agreement, I, I think hostilities are likely to persist between the Iranian government and countries in the West in particular. Um, and this will continue to deter foreign investment even, even further down the line, potentially. But I'll pass on to James for some thoughts from, from the opposite side of the table. Yes, James. I mean, is this actually going to be a, a top priority for, for the Biden administration, do you think, given, you know, his comments about the sort of apparent potential lack of focus, although clearly the, the, a greater alignment at the top of, of the Iranian regime over nuclear talks does potentially offer some encouragement. But what, what is Biden going to do about this, do you think? Yeah, going on the back of uh, what Eloise was touching upon, I do think you can see a kind of dichotomizing approach that the Biden administration is taking, because on one hand, you do have quite a firm foreign policy stance uh, and a reluctance to buckle under, I guess, pressure in a similar way to his predecessor. Uh, and I do think you'll see flare ups in terms of Iranian Israeli relations, and that may inflame uh, relations, particularly with the United States. But juxtaposed to that, you are actually seeing a lot of underlying action moving towards a re like reestablishing negotiations on nuclear talks. Um, you're seeing a lot of like uh, informal dialogue between NGOs, which is 1.5 track and 2.0 track negotiations in the lead up to this election and just in terms of, you know, higher uh, level officials within the Biden administration, they seem to be signaling their intent to resume talks quite swiftly with what seems like a pretty interested party coming from the other side, regardless of who the candidate actually is that assumes the presidency. I do think the process does land heavily on, you know, what will be traded in regards to sanctions relief for Iran. And particularly for the U.S., um, some key sticking points that the Iranian regime has been tight-lipped around how they will handle is access to sites by IEA inspectors from the U.N. Atomic Agency, as well as an agreement that Iran wants to prevent the U.S. from unilaterally leaving the JCPOA again in the same way that Trump pulled the U.S. out in uh, 2018. 
And I do think that that leveraging point may be something that will stall negotiations partially. However, I do think you'll see a resumption of talks, particularly on the back of you know, upcoming rounds of EU talks as they've been a vocal advocate of building on this deal in the short term. And I do think that the U.S. under this Biden administration, which is kind of trying to uh, reestablish these alliances with European powers, will it will tether well with this resumption of talks with a new Iranian administration as well. Okay, thanks, James. That's interesting. But do you think that if the Biden administration does push forward with these kind of talks and makes the sort of concessions that you allude to that, that it puts at risk its wider policy agenda and priorities in terms of uh, relationships with Israel, uh, the Gulf, and others who uh, they were against the JCPOA, and there's no less so uh, in terms of new talks. Right. Well, I can touch on this, and I'm sure Elvis can probably add a bit of uh, nuance as well from the Mena side. But I do think regardless of the text itself of any resumption of negotiations or any new deal that the U.S. will join, there will be some level of tension that's sparked with conventional allies in the region, uh, particularly Israel, which has seen the previous deal as wholly insufficient, regardless of uh, the progress it made in terms of preventing nuclear proliferation in the region. But I do think the U.S. is also kind of balancing this like managing of alliances in the region with this growing geopolitical influence of China. And you're seeing this particularly in the signing of the Iranian Sino Pact, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, as well as the you know omnipresent relations between Russia and Iran. And I do think the US and the Biden administration in particular sees this deal as a way to assert US geopolitical influence in this region in a way that you know it has not been able to for quite some time. And in the face of what seems like a growing presence of China in the region as well, and an affinity towards moving in that direction by Iran. It's a closing window, I think, more or less, that the Biden administration is not going to let slip. And also, I think just on the premise of, you know, his electoral campaign, I do think this speaks to Biden's like assertion of reestablishing multilateral fora and kind of building out these arms agreements. You're seeing this interest as well in kind of re-tethering and strengthening, you know, missile the INF treating treaty with the with Russia as well. So I do think it kind of fits the overall foreign policy pattern of the Biden administration to still pursue this and try to then soothe through back channel dialogue and maybe some other kind of concessions, potential reprievement to conventional allies in the region. Great. Thank you, James. And Eloise, if I could turn to you from your perspective, how would either successful or unsuccessful talks impact the wider region over the next sort of 6, 12, 18 months? Well, I think I won't say too much on this. I think James has, has hit the nail on the head with regards to conventional US allies in the region, particularly the likes of Israel and Saudi Arabia. Obviously, I think going off our current predictions, it seems fairly likely that we'll have progress, if not some kind of nuclear agreement, hopefully towards the end of the year or by the end of 2021, if not into early 2022. But this really does raise the possibility of further Israeli hostilities. Obviously, Israel itself has gone through quite a turbulent period politically. Finally, it does have a government, a, a quite a, a shaky coalition government, but it's certainly a policy area for Israel that, that is highly unlikely to change. So I think Israeli hostilities towards Iranian proxies, um, particularly in the maritime sphere, I think that that is something that is likely to continue if we were to see a nuclear deal. But I think that is something that will continue in the background regardless, because Israel has obviously for the past few years really upped its sort of cyber attacks and things like that, just to constantly be that sort of destabilizing effect in Iran as, as Iranian capabilities and things have grown and expanded in the region. 
as you say, Eloise, there's been a significant amount of maritime activity in terms of hostilities over the last year or so. But you don't see that necessarily escalating to a point where the wider shipping environment is at greater risk, though. I think that's always a possibility. But as we've seen in the last few years, it has very much been tit for tat. Obviously, that has escalated sharply. But now with the Biden administration, I think that's something that um, that he's certainly looking to, to control potentially more than, than Trump did or, or was able to. So I think it, these kind of tit for tat incidents are likely. Obviously, they also included British vessels. And, and there were incidents that were highly provocative and highly inflammatory that were tit for tat, not just between Israel and Iran, but also yeah, other countries as well. So I think it, it is something that will persist as to whether I think there will be sort of dramatic escalations like we've seen over the past couple of years. I, I think there's the potential, but but I don't I don't see that as being a likely um, possibility. I think the interesting thing is, particularly with these Iranian elections, is actually with regards to foreign policy and almost taking the nuclear deal out of it, the Iranian leadership will now be fairly united, but foreign policy will remain relatively unchanged. The Supreme Leader and the IRGC have, have long had quite considerable control over these policy areas. So actually, whether there's a, a hardline uh, dominated regime or, or a more moderate candidate, um, as we've seen under Rouhani, actually doesn't really matter anymore. So I think in terms of these foreign policy issues, it's they are certainly susceptible to flares. So yeah, we'll, we'll hold our breath and wait to see what happens, I guess, in the coming weeks with not only the elections, but also the nuclear talks. Eloise, one thing that's often forgotten in amongst these large geopolitical considerations and discussions about the whole region is what is actually going on inside Iran? What about the Iranian people? How is the situation looking for them? You've discussed how they might you know, effectively veto the election by just not voting. But what is the situation on the ground? Yeah, you're right. It's definitely um, there's a high degree of voter apathy, I think. Um, and, and as I said earlier, this will likely be probably the lowest turnout in elections as, that we've seen for presidential elections in, in Iran. I think there are a couple of interesting domestic implications of the vote. Firstly, I think given that we are anticipating a, a more high, hardline regime, I, th- I think in the last few decades, we've seen a real sort of pendulum back and forth between reformist and then principalist presidents, whereas it does seem like this is now entrenching a trend that will be much harder to reverse and one that is very much going in the direction of more conservative and, and, and a hardline government. Certainly difficulties in reversing this trend will mean likely, I think, that Iranian society could become more closed off. And, and this will include things like greater internet censorship. Obviously, we've seen this in the last few years to a greater degree, greater emphasis on things like domestic surveillance Uh, And obviously this comes off the back of some of the largest protests in the country's history in November 2019, which were obviously brutally put down with with some estimates saying that hundreds of of protesters were killed at the hands of security forces who fired live bullets into crowds. It is a very volatile situation. Protests are being crushed brutally. But the Iranian peoples, I think, are increasingly frustrated, not only with the lack of kind of reformist promise uh, that that they saw in, in Rouhani, but yeah, with, with mounting censorship and obviously the, the the tide, the way the Iranian government is going, I think it, it leads to a high degree of, of voter apathy. And obviously, I think the major policy area at the forefront of people's minds is obviously the dismal economic situation. So all of the candidates, including Raisi, have, have really focused on job creation and the fact that they're going to lower inflation. But obviously, 
creating jobs in, in the government sector and spending on social welfare programmes and all of these things will be pretty much impossible in the current economic circumstances, particularly given the sanctions. Um, and even sanctions relief are unlikely to really give respite from the, from the dire economic situation. So in terms of the economy, no real progress is expected in this area, which, is, which has obviously been then further exacerbated by the pandemic. So I think potentially in the next year, we'll see increasing oil exports, um, as, as James rightly pointed out, particularly with Iran's shift sort of eastwards away from the West and the US and more to China and Russia. Increasing exports will, will possibly help to curb the economic decline. But given that few other industries are really in such a position of economic importance, I think generally under a candidate such as Raisi, who also doesn't see being removed from, from blacklists on things like the Financial Action Task Force. They're just not a priority. So I think the economy is really going to suffer, which will continue this cycle of voter apathy, outbreaks of protest, and then, and then sort of brutal, brutal crackdowns. So um, inside Iran, probably not the happiest story. Okay, now that's fascinating. I think I can see a scenario in which these talks uh, succeed, but that the victory is is ultimately symbolic in, in that Iran's foreign policy continues along its fairly meddlesome path in the wider region. And the US's traditional allies are increasingly upset by an agreement that doesn't really contain the nuclear ambitions of Iran. But we shall, as you say, keep a close eye on it and no doubt come back to the subject before too long. Eloise, James, thank you very much indeed. And now here's John Breen, our content manager, with a look at the events in the coming week. Thank you, Alex. In terms of events to watch this week, the overarching theme seems to be elections. Almost two weeks after the Peruvian presidential elections, electoral authorities have yet to declare the official results. Right-wing candidate Keiko Fujimori continues to challenge electoral certificates across the country with the support of Lima's elite. Protests are likely to continue in the capital. Fujimori demand a recount, while on the other side, supporters of far-left candidate Pedro Castillo are also likely to call for protests in the capital and Cusco. Continuing delays around declaring a new president will likely increase political polarisation and drive the risk of violent escalation among left-wing protesters. In Africa, Ethiopians will vote in their general election on June 21st amid elevated tensions, with opposition parties and international observers expecting fraud and a high likelihood of outbreaks of ethnic violence during the polls, which the military may continue to struggle given their focus on the conflict in Tigray. In the Caucasus, Armenia will hold parliamentary elections from June 20th. It is currently a close race between acting Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan and former President Robert Kocharian. No, I've pronounced the name wrong again. <laughs> Give me two minutes. In the Caucasus, Armenia will hold parliamentary elections from June 20th. It is currently a close race between acting Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan and former President Robert Kocharian. The rhetoric among the candidates is divisive and the election is very polarising, so there is a risk of protests in the immediate aftermath as there is a relatively good chance of the losing side alleging fraud and staging protests. Iran will also hold elections this week for the presidency on June 18th, with a hard line expected to come to power. The elections will have potentially major consequences for the ongoing indirect nuclear talks with the US and longer term stability in the region, considering tensions with other regional actors such as Israel and the Gulf states. 
And finally, in India, silent sit-in protests from the Maratha community are ongoing across Maharashtra state, including Mumbai and Pune on June 16th, and the protests could continue for several weeks. The Maharatha community are protesting a Supreme Court decision that quashed a 12% reservation in education and a 13% reservation in jobs for their community, which the Bombay High Court upheld recently. The protests will likely remain peaceful, but there is potential for clashes with security forces, while disruption to transport and logistics due to road and railway blockades are also possible. And that's it for me for this week.